Bino Line Media presents the history of being black. Welcome to another episode of the history of being black. I am Eunice Elliott. I am still being black and I am still being joined by some of the hottest, most talented black folks in the country. Uh, Today, I'm super excited because some of you may or may not know I have dreams of being an artiste and we have someone who is an artiste times a billion. So we have Shelly Williams joining us today. And Shelly, first of all, welcome to the history of being black. Thank you so much for taking time out to join us. Eunice, it is a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So in reading your bio, you're one of those multi-hyphenate type talent. So I'm curious, I can read off some of your accolades, but I'm curious as to how do you introduce someone who doesn't know you? How do you, what is your elevator pitch about yourself? I now use the term storyteller Mm. because no matter what medium of entertainment I am using, I'm doing the exact same thing. So whether I am directing, whether I am producing, whether I am you know, writing a book, what I'm doing is telling stories. I love that. I actually say that a lot. And I even use storytelling. I love to interior design. And I say mm-hmm. your, your house, your home should tell your story as well. Um, so as you mentioned, you are a producer, you are a director, you are an author, you're an actress, you're a choreographer, you're like everything and not just anywhere you're internationally on Broadway. Uh, so first of all, tell me what was your introduction to the arts and what made you know that's what you wanted to pursue for a career? Well, I was born into the business. Um, my dad is the drummer for the Ohio Players. So mm-hmm. I have only ever known you know, show business as a way of life. And I thankfully always knew that you could make a living at it. I was fearless in pursuing it. Like my dad, I was a drummer all through high school and I played in the pit orchestra of all the shows. And then in my senior year, I auditioned for The Wiz and I got the role of Dorothy and it changed my life forever. You know, I had to have that really uncomfortable conversation with my parents when I told them, I don't want to be a musician that I was going to turn down a music scholarship to college and I wanted to be an actor. (laughs) And, you know, thankfully, you know, their response was, I'm glad you told us and you didn't waste our money. And now what's the plan? And so I took a gap year and I worked at the mall and I studied acting and I ended up auditioning for the American Musical Dramatic Academy in New York City and got a scholarship and came to New York and went to school. Okay, so you have to know you have a very unique, as you say, origin story as your superhero has progressed, because for you to be able to say that, you know, that's a unique gift for your parents to raise you fearless of of pursuing a dream. I think that's one of the things that most people don't get the blessing of is is fearlessness being offered by the people you trust most. But then even pivoting from what you had been pursuing to pursue something else. Have you always been able to find success and find your way regardless because you still are are finding new paths to to blaze new trails and to tell stories? Have you always usually found yourself uh, succeeding in those things? Well, you know, the hustle is real. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I wanted to do something, if I wanted to take dance classes, I was clean in the studios to get the scholarship to take the class. Nice. I was never afraid to do the work. And I was never afraid, you know, I became a director in my 30s. And by this time, I'd been on Broadway for 10 straight years. And I went all the way back to being the assistant who was getting coffee. Because I've always known, you know, as a musician, you have to you have to practice. Like, there's a rigor to that. And when I was dancing as a child, you know, you take class and you work on it. So there's always been embedded in me that whatever you want to do is going to take work. 
So it's the fearlessness, you know, that's also kind of married with the ambition and the drive to just get it done. And so I've always believed that, you know, hard work will be rewarded, maybe not in the way that you imagine, and it may take longer than you think it's going to take, but I've never known hard work to not yield a positive result. You know, it might be different than what you want, but the work and the effort will certainly pay off. I, I so agree with that. I try to, uh, is, I feel like I'm having a conversation with myself. So what does that say when I think about me with your accolades? <laughs> but um, it is one of those things where, you know, people think that they see the highlights of your life. They don't see the hustle. You know, they say the dream is free, but the hustle will cost you. So they don't see all of the rejections and all of the detours and all the redirections and disappointments and discouragement. They just see the highlight reel of your life. And so, you know, the this idea of hard work um, is not something that I think people understand organically of the most successful people they meet or most successful people they consume. Um, how do you um, communicate when you're when you're working with young people or even with your own kids, you know, how do you communicate the importance of the hard work portion in addition to having talent and drive? Well, the thing that I say, uh, you know, I taught at NYU for a couple of years and I have two children. I've got a 10-year-old and 11-year-old is I talk to them about how you have to remain deeply curious always. And if you're in this place of intense curiosity, then you are seeking, And the act of seeking information, the act of seeking how you can be better, who is, you know, hitting it hard, you know, like who's doing the thing that you want to do and how do you want to be better? That keeps you motivated, keeps you moving, keeps you interested, keeps you engaged. And so, you know, there... There is, there is nothing for, you know, I talked to my daughter and she's like, I want to be a YouTube star. And I was like, well, that does look glamorous, but let's talk about what the cost of that is. Let's talk about the time of that. It's not that you just turn on a camera and everything happens that at some point, you know, you might have that moment where you're discovered, but how do you maintain that? Everything takes work. And if you want, as I say to her, if you want nice things, you've got to work hard to get those nice things. And I've always, you know, I've always had goals in my life. Now I have goals in my life. I imagine the things that I want in the future. And then I, I put into motion the work it's going to take to get those things. So are you able to, because I've heard several young people, that is the goal is to be an influencer, to be a YouTube star. Uh, As a parent now yourself, are you able to say, okay, let's go, let's figure it out, let's do it? Or are you now, I know when you have a child is different than when you were the child saying, I want to go do this thing. How are you able to manage knowing how you were wanting to blaze new trails in supporting them with their ideas right now? They're still pretty young, but... Do you just say, okay, let's just see it through? Or do you wait until they want to be something different the next week? Well, you know, it's ever changing. The the thing that didn't exist when we were younger was this, you know, that we couldn't make ourselves stars, you know, between the three channels, like nobody was going to put us on TV. (laughs) There was no, there were no no vehicles for that. So in this way, it's, it's all new terrain for me. But the thing that I do impress upon my kids is, you only have so many years to be a child. And that's a gift. You have the rest of your life to be an adult. You have the rest of your life to make money. You have the rest of your life to be seen and judged. And pe- But in this precious window, you can play. Mm. And, and, and I try, you know, the, the thing that was so interesting about the pandemic, there were so many bad things that happened in it. 
But when I look at what was good that came out of it personally, you know, in our own lives, you know, we were homeschooling, which was rough, but we tried to build our lunchtime together. And then we would go outside for recess. We'd go outside for 20 minutes and we'd just like play basketball or we'd play gaga ball or we'd do something just to get a little exercise. And I realized like, why did adults stop doing recess? Like recess is the jam. (laughs) I was like, we we should go out to lunch. We should all just go out and like, you know, play ball for 20 minutes. That, and I, you know, I said to them, I said, you know what? Mommy loves to play with you like this. I don't get to do this in my life anymore. And I want you to cherish this because this goes away. And so I think that you know, knowing that they have the rest of their lives to be an adult. I don't encourage my kids to to be, you know, in the entertainment business. I'm like, you can do it if you want to, but you're not going to do it as a child. Mm-hmm. As a child, you're going to be a child. And then when you're an adult, you can have a job. But, you know, I, I, that's a world that that's a line that I don't want to cross with them at this age. If they're talented now, they'll be talented in 10 years. So that's just my own personal choice. But But I really do try and impress upon them how amazing it is to be young and free and billless, you know? <laughs> you don't realize that, you know, it's like most people would say zero out of 10 adulting. I would not recommend it. Like, what is this thing we're doing? And uh, you just keep doing it. And so that is the need for curiosity, even as an adult to ever uh, keep evolving and rediscovering new passions and talents. So I'm curious about when you were a young person and you you won the scholarship to, to then study in New York, I'm thinking, I'm imagining Broadway was always a concept and an idea that you could easily maybe possibly get attached to. But I'm curious about your first time you saw a show on Broadway, which is still on my bucket list. I saw a touring uh, show of The Lion King a few years ago in Birmingham, Alabama. And I was like, okay, if this is the B or C team and this is a traveling team, I have got to go and see it. So talk to me about what is it about Broadway? What was your first introduction to it? And then also once you were on Broadway, what, what was that whole cycle like for you? It was, it was just incredible. I, I saw the touring productions when they came to Dayton, Ohio, when I was younger and I saw the whiz mm. and I saw a little black girl who looked like me, who was on that stage. And at that time I had no idea that I was going to go into, you know, theater But I remember thinking it was magical Mm. because we weren't seeing ourselves on television very much. But I saw her as a leading character with great dignity, fully like fully embodying her dignity and her grace. You know, the television shows that we had when we were little really kind of put us in a box, Mm -hmm. black folks in a box. But The Wiz was liberating. It was elegant and it was beautiful. And they were dancing so beautifully, just all these black bodies, just, you know, I never forgot how that made me feel to see that show. When I got to Broadway, it was incredible. When I got to New York and I started seeing shows, I saw Once in this Island and I had that same feeling. I saw LaShawn's on that stage and and she's a very, very good friend of mine now. And, you know, at that time, all I wanted to do was be her. You know, I thought if, if, a little girl, if a girl, a woman like that can have a role like that, then there is a place for me here. Mm. And, you know, unlike young people today who come out of college immediately and think like, when am I going to be on Broadway? I actually didn't think I was going to be on Broadway for a while. You know, my thought was like Broadway is for people who paid their dues and worked other places. So my ambition really at that moment wasn't to 
immediately get a Broadway show. It was to learn and to grow and and travel. You know, I did three European tours. I traveled the world on somebody else's dime, which was amazing. You know, I worked at regional theaters. By the time I got to Broadway, I felt like I had earned it to be there. And I had made my mistakes on the road. So I knew what it meant to be on time and what it meant to, you know, be prepared for rehearsals. I had learned all of those things. And, and I loved every second of it, every second of it. So what what do you, uh, even in listening to you talk, and like I said, I'm imagining just buying a ticket and going, I could not imagine being on a call sheet with a time to show up to actually be on a stage. And you having that memory of when you saw that touring company as a child, do you ever get um, attached or even think about all of the little girls at that time that were looking at you uh, on stage? And now that you've transitioned to to being director of these shows and being the boss as a woman. Are you um, attached to that idea of who's looking at you now? Always, always, every second. You know, my, my mom said something to me, you know, a lot when I was little and she said, your name will go with you everywhere. Mm. Every time somebody opens up a playbill and they see your name and they look on that stage and they see you, that's your name. That's your reputation. And then she said, Wherever you go, you're representing me. Don't embarrass me with the end of that story. (laughs) But, um, you know, I I think I did think about that. I always think about that. I became a director for that reason. You know, I became a director because I had done so many shows with all white male creative teams. And, you know, if something wasn't, didn't feel right to me as a Black woman, I had no one to talk to about that. No one to say, like, in this line, a little crazy? Like, no one was seeing the world from my perspective. Mm. And so I, I realized that if I wanted the change, I needed to be the change. Mm. Now so, that hashtag at the end of every episode, we always ask our, our wonderful guests to offer our listeners an action item to hashtag be the change. And so um, that's, that's beautiful when you think about this idea that so many times when we aren't in the room, that certain missteps that could be prevented, you know, as far as, especially in cancel culture, it's like if you have more people in the room with varied experiences and perspectives, someone could speak up. But oftentimes when people do get in the room, they fear speaking up, you know, yeah. because they're, they're happy just to be there. How do you, how did you find the strength to know that your voice needed to be heard, even though it was one of very few in those spaces? Is it particularly in directing? It took a while. You know, it it, it definitely, you, you know, I I won't say you, I'll say me. I became accustomed to being the size the room would allow me to be. Mm. And when I realized that I needed to be bigger than the room, that the, the actual room wasn't big enough, that's when I became a director. And And as I, you know, as I was assisting, I was finding my way to have the conversations and walk on eggshells and get the experience. And I realized, you know, when I became the director, I'm like, now this is my room. How do I want to change this room? How do I set the tone about the way that we speak to each other? How do I, you know, have conversations with writers about the work? You know, like it might be a great play, But let's talk about these characters and let's talk about, you know, are they stereotypical? Is this necessary? Is this your own bias that you're putting on this? Because it's not a part of the play. You know, really analyzing what we are telling explicitly and what we are telling, you know, implicitly and being able to check that. 
so that that part of it, you know, I I love that's the that's the great part about being director is that you do control that you control the tone you you are you set your creative team you get to choose the diverse group of people that you want to be around that is in conversation of course with producers who you know will have a say on those kind of things but you can also walk away mm-hmm. and i think a lot of people you know i will never judge someone's circumstance because some people need to stay for financial reasons and otherwise and and I'll never judge someone for making a choice that they need to make. You know, I, I know that there's a lot of people who are saying like, you shouldn't take that part, you know, because it wasn't right for you. And, and I, I, you never know what people are going through right. and you never know what they need. But if you are in a position to say, this is a moment where I can use my power and my privilege and my status and say no more, then that is brave. Right. And that creates change. And so in the moments when I can, I do. And I, you know, also start my conversations with people from a, this is what you're getting. Like, there's no surprises. Like anybody yeah. who's hiring Shelly Williams knows exactly I'm outspoken. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to have the difficult conversations with grace I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to create a room where people can make mistakes and there's opportunities for growth and humanity because we're all on this journey of growth. So, you know, no one's going to get canceled in my room, but if your actions are egregious, you will be removed from the room. So, you know, it's not that you can't make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes and we all have to, you know, I'm hoping are, are, are in a position to say part of growing is making mistakes learning and growing and and continuing this journey towards humanity. But that refusal to grow are people that I will not tolerate in any, you know, in any projects that I'm working on. You know, it's interesting and I may be completely biased as a black female creative, but, you know, as a person who is, has been in, has been disenfranchised in different rooms and spaces, to me, it's obvious that if I was going to be biased, which I might be, that you would want a Black woman in a position of leadership, regardless of the industry, because of our position in society, that we get to consume so much of everything. Mm-hmm. And so our perspective is not limited to Black, is not limited to women, is not limited to an age, is not limited to a demographic. And as you spoke about hu- humanity, you know, we are attached to that in a way that's unique uh, to, than anyone else in the world. And so to me, it makes obvious sense that you would have Black women in positions of power and leadership. But as one of the few, um, how is it for you? I, I know you say you speak up when you can and, and you learn and you grow, but in a space like Broadway, that when we just hear the term, it all sounds sexy and beautiful, but you know all of the, the, the dirty things that happen behind the curtain. How are you able to continue to grow in that space and knowing that you are creating so much space, hopefully for more Black women to follow you? Something that happened right after the death of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd was the organization Black Theater United was created. Mm. And, and that began with conversations that Audra McDonald and LaShawn's made phone calls to, to 19 of us. And, and that group includes, you know, Billy Porter, Vanessa Williams, incredible director, Kenny Leon, Wendell Pierce, Tamara Tooney, Brian Stokes Mitchell, Norm Lewis, wow. Natasha Williams, Lilius White. I mean, it is an extraordinary group of actors. And we all 
were in pain. You know, we were, we were hurting and we came together to say, we all have platforms and influence. How can we use it in this moment? Mm. First, to protect and illuminate and amplify what is happening to our brothers and sisters on the streets, and also to stop the nonsense of perpetrating stereotypes on our stages. And so we formed an organization. We have just finished uh, what has been released as the New Deal on, on Broadway, which is, you know, we held a summit for six months where we had all the theater owners. We had a great number of producers, creatives, des designers, directors, choreographers, unions, all together in a room to say, what are you committing to? We need changes in habits, changes in structures, and we need mechanisms of accountability because no one deserves to walk into a room where there is harm. Everyone deserves to have a sense of belonging in this industry. And we have to take full responsibility for the stories that we tell and, and the authentic ways that we tell them. And we need a commitment. There will be no more all white creative teams ever again. And we got over 200 people in our industry to sign that piece of paper. Wow. Great. And thank you. Um, it was, you know, as an organization, you know, how, how did I get through the year and how am I getting through this, you know, this period of time of all of this change and all of these conversations is we banded together. You know, my Black Theater United Brothers and Sisters, we meet every Sunday night and we talk and we strategize about how to make it better for the generations coming behind us. And we talk about the incredible gifts that the legends before us, you know, paved the way what they endured so we don't forget their stories. We make sure that they're not repeated. And we, you know, every time we talk, we're like, what are we going to do? You know, what are our action items? Mm -hmm. What kind of impact can we have on this industry? So that, that's how I've gotten through this is, is really thinking about, you know, what can we do and how can we make that better and, and putting plans into place to do that. That is so powerful. So even though I'm not in the organization dot, dot, dot yet, I can bring the chips for the Sunday night meeting because that sounds like such a powerful dynamic room of people. Uh, I mean, that's just amazing. And, and it really does take us banding together and realizing our own power, whether it's purchase power, creative power, you know, and saying, you know, it's time for us to make these changes. So that is so exciting to know you were able to do that. Now on the artistic side, Broadway is reopening. What are you working on now before I get to your latest project, which is Off-Broadway. <laughs> so I have, a, I have a couple full circle moments. One is that I'm directing the revival of Aida. Mm -hmm. And I was in the original company 20 years ago. So oh. it is really incredible to really re-envision this piece. Mm -hmm. um, when it was done before, it was, you know, done with a half black, half white cast where the white people played Egyptians. And, and I went back and, you know, did my research and started looking and I was like, wait a minute, this show should be set in the 25th dynasty where Nubians and Egyptians were indistinguishable. These are all black folks. So let's, let's do this. Let's, let's re-examine this story. So I'm very excited to do that show. We were in rehearsals when Broadway closed. We were doing a lab to prepare for a national tour. So it's very heartbreaking because the show should have been open for a year and a half now. Yeah. Um, but we will be putting that show up in 2022. 
So that's that's exciting. Um, and then I'm doing I'm directing the revival of The Wiz. That's insane that you would get a chance to have these full circle moments on Broadway, no less. I'm going to claim this now since we are recording this. I will be at the revival of Aida as well as The Wiz on Broadway. Yes watch you and see you because like I said it's I've been to New York a trillion times I've never done the what I have always considered the the fun parts I've always been there working so uh, that is so exciting congratulations and so how do you find time to do everything you're doing and then still write a book your book just came out last month right your latest came out last week Last week. Yeah. Well, last week was last month, technically. But yes, <laughs> that is correct. You're right. <laughs> well, where do you find the time? Tell me about your legacy, what inspired it, and tell me how that's been going so far. You know, your legacy started because I was trying to have a conversation with my kids about slavery. And and I wanted them to hear it from me because when I learned about it in school, it was horrifying. It was terrible. And all the kids were looking at it. It was terrible. And I didn't want them to experience that. So I knew I wanted to have the conversation. And as they got older, I was like, I'll have it when they're five and six. And then I was like, maybe they're not ready for, you know, we kept pushing, <laughs> pushing mm-hmm. the date. And then I started, I was like, okay, now it's time. You know, they were seven and eight years old. And, and I was like, let me just go find a book and read it to them. And I couldn't find exactly what I was looking for. And so I started doing a lot of research on my own to find my way in And very quickly, I realized that I didn't want to talk to them about slavery. Slavery is an act of oppression. I wanted to talk to them about their enslaved ancestors. Wow. And that distinction. That's huge. Was everything. Because when I talk to them about their enslaved ancestors, I'm talking to them about the brilliance, Mm. the ingenuity, the dignity, the grace, the brilliance of our ancestors. Mm -hmm. And I'm connecting the line from our enslaved ancestors to us sitting here right now because of their grace and their brilliance and their ingenuity and their dignity. We are here today. And so this shouldn't be a conversation that I'm scared to talk about with them. This would be a conversation I'm excited to talk about with them. Wow. And, And the more I started researching, I realized that I kept thinking about the moment the slave ships arrived in the Americas as the beginning of their story. And my book, the first five words of my book are, your story begins in Africa. Mm. And that to me was, when I broke that open, I was like, oh, this has to begin in Africa. I have to talk about all the many countries and the many kingdoms where we thrived. I have to talk about us being the first people on earth Mm. and, and, and what, you know, the areas where we were experts connect the dots between the brilliance of farming and, and agriculture that we had in West Africa that built America. It was no coincidence that the tradespeople, the geniuses, the experts, that they took them to do what they needed to be done here because they couldn't figure it out. Mm-hmm. When I connected that, I was like, oh, well, now I got a story to tell. <laughs> and so I wrote the book because if I figured if I were struggling and I'm an actual storyteller, this is all I do all day long. And I was struggling 
with how to talk with my kids about something that I needed them to know. I didn't want them to be ashamed of having enslaved ancestors. I wanted them to have great pride in that. And I wanted them to be able to correct the record if someone came at them with half the story. Mm. Because when I grew up, when I heard, you know, our ancestors speaking broken English, I thought it was because they were ignorant. I never once thought about them speaking their own language fluently. Right, right. I never thought about their desire to learn English and then being prevented from doing so. When I saw them in rags, I thought they were poor. I did not realize that was an act of cruelty, as were the, the slashes on their backs. I thought, what did they do to deserve this? I did not think about the cruelty perpetrated on their bodies. And so it was really important to me that my kids knew first who their ancestors were so that if anything came at them that wasn't right, they could say, oh, no, 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 let's finish this story. Let's talk about how they got here, how they endured, how they survived, how they created a language with all of the languages they spoke together because they were so genius how they loved each other as family when their own families were taken from them. The grace and the love that we come from extraordinary people and we must keep them on our lips at all times. We must remember them. We must cherish them. We must honor them and we must keep going because there is work to be done that is so powerful. Just uh, everything you said was, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to shout through through your your response, but just even the the language and so much matters in the language. And 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 I grew up, you know, being taught about slaves and slavery and the, the humanity that is attached to saying enslaved ancestors positions it in such a way that is more truthful and more honorable and really so powerful to realize that we are descendants of the strongest people on the planet will cause you to walk a little bit straighter today, even with the challenges we have today. So now this book came out last week. Um, Normally in your storytelling, you're able to kind of get that immediate response an immediate laugh or applause or standing ovation. How is it now putting this gift and this baby out into the world and not knowing who's all turning the pages and what they're feeling? Is that different for you? It's crazy and I don't like it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> used to know it right now that worked versus wait, is it, hey, is this thing on? Is anyone reading this book? What did you think? Tell me about it. <laughs> it's so weird. Uh, you know, it's the immediate gratification of, you know, like I have no idea. Yeah. I, I you know, I've, I feel very blessed that I've gotten good reviews on the book, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. So I'm like, well, those three people liked it. <laughs> And just know that's just a sample size of a greater pool of people that just haven't been able to get that information to you yet. That's what you have to know. Well, I am, uh, you know, I did, I did a book launch and I got to read the book out loud and I actually got to record my own audio book, which was really, really fun and kind of crazy. So, you know, I, at the book launch, I read the book and I got choked up reading it. Of course. Because I, you know, I've only ever read it to my kids and Whenever I read to my kids, you know, I read, I'm, I'm a very 
you know, animated person. I was an actor for years. So I read, you know, the book like a story. And I had so many, I had so many friends, you know, people that were on that were like, I haven't had a story read to me in years, you know, like adults. And, and it was really incredible. And, and I'm, I'm saddened that because of COVID, you know, I can't go into classrooms and read the book and I can't have that experience of sharing it with other children the way that I had imagined when I, when I wrote the book two years ago. Not yet. You will be able to. Not yet. Hopefully very, very soon. So I I always, as I mentioned, I like for our guests to be able to offer our listeners action items as such um, a diverse storyteller. First thing I would say, uh, congratulations on everything that hasn't happened yet and everything that has already happened. We we are watching and cheering you on and supporting you, whether we bought a ticket and made it to Broadway or not. <laughs> but what is an action item that someone listening, you mentioned Be the Change and how you and your colleagues have banded together and have already affected change. What can someone just listening to this episode today uh, do to hashtag Be the Change to activate a change in their communities and their lives? I would say first and foremost, be your authentic self because you have a unique gift that the world needs and really stepping into your authenticity is going to change every space that you are in. Um, So that's first and foremost, is giving yourself permission to be yourself and then to take up space. You know, we, we are learning, you know, I I think, you know, as black women, I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking about, you know, did everybody else get a plate? Did every like learning how to sit? You know, I don't know if you were ever in, in New York and on the subway, but have you ever seen a man like sprawl on the subway? Like their legs go wide and the whole thing. And I was like, wow, it must feel amazing to take up space. Mm-hmm. So I'm learning how to do that, how to throw my shoulders back, how to be the size that I know I am on the inside to be that size on the outside. So that's something that I'm personally working on. And, you know, we talked about being fearless. And I think that, you know, being fearless and knowing, you know, standing in your convictions and then finding your tribe, because, you know, it's my brothers and sisters that are constantly encouraging me. You know, I have people around me that lift me up, that are positive, people that are about something. Mm-hmm. So I'm reminded constantly that I need to be about something because they're on a trajectory. But really, you know, it's hard. It's hard being a Black woman. It is, there are days where I'm just exhausted from the fight. And it's hard to hold that in. Sometimes you just got to let it out and say, today was rough because I had to deal with ignorant people. I had to fight harder to be heard. I had to, you know, and, and it's okay to to let that out. And know that, you know, tomorrow is going to be another fight. But each day the fight gets easier when there are more people who are fighting with you. Drops the mic. (laughs) (laughs) This has been just so awe-inspiring for me. Like I said, I'm uh, doing the history of being Black is a wonderful opportunity that Ken and um, Amino Line Media Group gave me last year. I just started doing Facebook Lives, a lot about what you shared about enslaved people, about them being the biggest and brightest and strongest people on the planet to build everything for free. And um, it's one of those passions for me is when I see people attached to their passions because then it just lights my fire even more. So this has been a real, real treat for me 
personally, and I'm certain for all of our listeners, hopefully, I mean, you're busy, but I usually um, kind of try to get on tape that people will stay a friend of the family and come back and take our calls should we reach out to you again. But we are definitely going to be um, watching you and supporting you. And um, thank you so much again for taking time to join us on the history of being Black today. Really transformative. Thank you for having me. And I will come back anytime. I love being in fellowship with you. I love what you're doing. I really appreciate it. I appreciate all the positivity that you're putting out in the world. And, and it, it was a real honor to be here. So thank you, Eunice. Thank you so much, Shelly. Until next time, you folks, I just, yo, just, I just feel like I'm about to go be great tonight. So you do the same. Take care of yourselves. And we'll talk to you next time on the next episode of The History of Being Black. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Ariel Mancibo. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And on IG and Twitter at History of Being Black. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old line media production.